You're listening to the Class on Task podcast, created for educators. Your hosts, Ashley and Brian, will share tips, strategies, and resources related to behavior and education that can help you in your classroom. Hi, and welcome to the Class on Task podcast. Today we have Nira Dieters, who is a speech and language pathologist and the owner of Super Speech Solutions. Mira has worked in a variety of settings, including hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, rehabilitation clinics, and schools over the past 14 years. So welcome, Mira. It's so nice to see you and have you on our show. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be here. If you could start out by just telling us a little bit about who you are, maybe why you became an SLP or speech-language pathologist for those listening who may not be familiar with SLP, if you can just share a little bit about your background, that'd be great. Sure. So I actually decided to become a speech therapist because my dad is a doctor. He's a radiologist. He'd been working at a hospital in Houston. And I really had no idea what speech therapy was until then. But he actually had been working with speech therapists at the hospital. So I really didn't know what I wanted to do. This was right before college. So he said, hey, why don't you come just shadow, you know, for two weeks at the hospital, come see what speech therapy, occupational therapy and physical therapy do. And then maybe you'll like one of them. Let's see. So I thought, wow, occupational therapy and physical therapy are really cool, but I'm really not that strong physically. (laughs) I don't know if I could do that. But the second I saw what a speech therapist does, I thought, wow, this is really cool. You can actually impact someone in a very profound way. You can help them communicate. And pretty Mm -hmm. much from then on, which was quite some time ago, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And here we are many years later, and I'm still in the same field and I'm, I'm happy to be in the field too. Nice. Yeah. And then you're also the owner of Super Speech Solutions. So what is that? So that's my private practice that I recently started actually just a few months ago. So the interesting thing about that is I never thought I was going to be a business owner. It was never really in my plans, but then COVID happened and I had the opportunity, like a lot of us did, to be able to work from home. And I really started to enjoy it. And I realized, you know what, I can actually make more money working from home. So why not give this a shot, see what happens (laughs) and go from there. So here we are. And it's been going well since then. So nice. Well, thank you. Excellent. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with what a speech language pathologist does in school settings, if you share what type of skills you teach and what those sessions may look like for students. Absolutely. So we work on speech and language. So I just want to emphasize the difference between the two. So speech is how we talk. It's our pronunciation of sounds. So a lot of times if we're not able to understand a child, that can definitely be something we work on in speech therapy. I would say the most common sounds that kids have trouble with are typically S, Z, and R. And in terms of language, language has more to do with, it could be to do with understanding. So maybe the child has trouble following directions or maybe they have trouble with their social skills, which especially for autistic children, that can be a whole area by itself. Or maybe a child has trouble expressing themselves using words, or maybe they're not able to put all the words together in a sentence to express themselves. So in terms of what the sessions look like, that's a great question because I feel like people, even including my brother, just say, wow, you play all day. So honestly, (laughs) the sessions are are play-based and they do look like we're playing, but, 
play-based meaning we're playing, but the goals that we're working on are embedded in that. So if I'm working with a child who wants to talk about Minecraft, well, I might be monitoring his S sound and he's talking about Minecraft. He doesn't realize what I'm doing, but yes, we are still doing work. <laughs> we're not just entirely playing, even though that's what it does look like. That's a good point, especially to uh, playing and using student interests, I think are, are so important, right? When you're looking to be able to yes. do therapy sessions. Yeah, that's for sure. That's very key to know what a child is interested in. That's actually the complete way you can get buy-in for speech therapy, especially with older kids. So they have definitely taught me a lot about video games, although since I don't play them, <laughs> I forget a lot of that information. But <laughs> All right. So what would you say are some common signs that students may need speech or language therapy? So if you have a teacher has students in their classroom and some concerns, what are some mm -hmm. things you would suggest them look out for? So if a child is between four and five and you have any kind of trouble understanding them, that's definitely something for a teacher to look out for. And for parents as well, too, I would say for both parties. If a child has trouble following directions, so let's say a teacher in a classroom gives them a two or three step direction, you can just tell the child looks really lost or they're only following one step. Certainly they're having trouble understanding or they have trouble with, for example, even with reading comprehension, you know, maybe they read the story, someone reads the story to them, but man, they really have trouble with the why and how questions or some of the higher level questions or inferencing questions where they have to use critical thinking skills to figure it out. I think all of those things are really when a speech therapist would be referred to in the school setting. And then the comprehension piece is huge. Like, so a lot mm -hmm. of times comprehension just, it's a hard skill in general, you know? So yes. sometimes as a teacher, you may not think like, oh, they have a comprehension skill. This may be an area that an SLP can assist with. So that's mm -hmm. a really, really good suggestion. Yeah, and I think a lot of those signs too, right, are things that teachers would be looking out for in a classroom setting. So what might the process look like for referring a student for additional services like speech language pathology? That's important to know. So I would say definitely if the teacher has concerns, they would want to talk to the parent or parents. Sometimes the referral will actually come from the parent. Let's say the child comes from another school district and they want to continue speech with their move to. But definitely we would want to talk to the special ed director. So the special education director is definitely going to be involved. And depending on the school, I would say they have a process where they've talked to the parents, the teacher is aware of the concerns, the special ed director is aware of the concerns. And then at that point, then the speech therapist would come into the picture. So what I have seen happen in some schools is that there may be kind of a monitoring period in which the child may be seen for a couple of sessions. And then at that point, the speech therapist could decide, okay, I don't really think this child had a little bit of difficulty, but we were able to remediate the problem that they were having, or wow, I think they need more therapy. And then at that point, let's say I as a speech therapist would go talk to a special ed director and say, hey, I've seen this child for a couple weeks. These are This is what I'm noticing. I think we need to have a meeting, which in the school is called ARD, ARD meeting, admissions review and dismissal. So that's actually the meeting that you always have a parent of some kind or both parents if they want to come attend in which the child gets signed on to speech therapy services, which are through the special education department. Okay, nice. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. All right, so I know when students are bilingual, it can be difficult to know whether to refer for speech or just wait for more language to develop. Do you have suggestions on that for teachers? 
So I think when children are bilingual, it becomes very tricky to know if they have truly a speech or language delay or they're really just dominant in one language. I think that's really hard to tell, especially because sometimes the teacher they have speaks one language and not the other one. But really, by definition, I think what's key for teachers to know is the child has to be behind in both. I emphasize both languages. Otherwise, it's not considered a speech or language delay. If I see a child who's very Spanish dominant, they have trouble in English, well, that's just second language acquisition. So I think it's better for a teacher to err on the referral side. So that way we can at least figure out if the child really is having a speech or language delay or disorder. But I think it can be really challenging. But like I said, it has to be trouble with both languages. So even with something like stuttering or fluency, whichever one you want to call it, the child should be having trouble in both languages. So that's the key thing to remember. And I think that's really important piece of information because if we don't look into that as a speech therapist, we can mislabel a lot of kids out there and then we're really not doing them a service. We're signing them on for a service they actually don't even need. Right. Yeah, I think that's a, a super important piece of it too because it takes a while for people to get acclimated to American school systems and being mm -hmm. able to acquire that language. So yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Kind of wait, right? <laughs> wait and see. And you know, if they're still struggling over time, then maybe we need to consider some sort of supports. But but again, I think you're right. You know, just kind of wait it out. And if there's not that deficiency in both languages, that's key. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So, what are some tips you have for teachers to help improve students' speech, language, and social skills? So I think each child is different, but I would say certainly if the child has speech goals and they're working on pronunciation of sounds, the teacher could definitely model the correct way to say the sound or to say the sound within a word. But I think what becomes difficult in the classroom is that any child who has speech therapy goals, you don't want them to feel like they're singled out. And so one thing Ashley and I had talked about previously is if the child is old enough, maybe you can establish a nonverbal cue so that the child knows what it means, the teacher knows what it means, but hey, everybody else in the classroom doesn't know what it means. So if you're working on something like a social skill and the child is getting off topic, maybe beforehand you've talked to the speech therapist or let's say the speech therapist and the child have come up with some kind of nonverbal cue. So again, it's a very small number of people who know what the cue is for, but it's very good for carryover because not only can you use it in speech therapy outside the classroom, you could use it in the classroom and mom or dad or caregivers or whoever else is involved with childcare can use it at home or when you go out in public. And it's not then very obvious what, what that even means. It's usually typically something like a thumbs up or thumbs down or a stop sign. I mean, we try to keep it pretty simple. Yeah, and I love the fact too that you're saying how it kind of it's generalizable, right, from school setting that the parent mm -hmm. or caregiver can can use. And I, I think that's so crucial because a lot of times, you know, Ashley and I talk about on the podcast, like the importance of collaboration and creating that mm -hmm. school collaboration. So I think that's a very valid point of like kind of how those strategies can be generalized. Yes, I think collaboration between all parties is very key. And that's actually how the child's speech and language skills develop even more over time. Yeah, for sure. The collaboration piece is huge. I know a lot of times, like as a teacher, I would ask the SLP to come in, like, can you give me tips on this or that? Mm -hmm. Or what are you mm -hmm. working on? What does it look like? Or even if I've, you know, reading over IEP goals and I'm not under, understanding how to work on something, 
always making sure that we're asking for suggestions or examples, or even for someone to model what that looks like to help us. So collaboration is for sure key. Speaking of collaboration, a lot of times staff in school are super busy with what's on their plate already, and they may not understand really what's all on your plate. So what are some suggestions or things you can think would be helpful for teachers to know about SLPs in your role in the school system? So first of all, I just want to say that all SLPs, I would say across the board, including myself, love collaborating with teachers, love getting information from teachers, love talking about behavior, because there's so much more you can learn about a child. But all that to say, sometimes the teacher may not know that our schedule is generally pretty slammed. So they may want to talk about that either when I'm picking up a child or taking them back to class. And I can see how it's a good time to talk about it, but usually my sessions are back to back, sometimes to the point where I don't have time to use the bathroom. (laughs) So perhaps just finding some kind of time in which things can be discussed, or maybe they can just be texted or emailed, or maybe it just needs to be a different form of communication Like I said, I think it's important, but I think it's just sometimes really hard because we're trying to go from session to session. And there are certain things within the schools that, you know, for example, we can't see a child during lunchtime. We can't see them during the PE and some of those other times or recess. And so we're trying the best we can to get everything done. Also for us to eat lunch and, you know, still Mm -hmm. do all the speech therapy stuff and make sure we're seeing all the kids we need to see. But the other thing I think to keep in mind is to be flexible. And I really feel like because I specialize in working with autistic children that I've really learned that from these children that I work with. And so one really good example of that is just allowing a child to take something with them, whatever it is that they want to speech therapy. So that's not really something I'd ever thought of, but I have this one boy that I started working with quite some time ago, but I remember last school year, Pre-COVID, it was really difficult to get him out of the classroom. I mean, he would have tantrums. He would be under the table. Eventually, he would leave the classroom because it just so happened I was working with another kid in his classroom. So he would walk out with her. They would hold hands, come together. But he actually felt good about leaving because he would hold a toy in his hand. And it was kind of like his security blanket. And he would hold it and then... For my particular speech room, we would walk up the stairs and go to the room. And then when we're coming back, we'd go back down the stairs. But I really feel like that helped him come with me. And I feel like if he had not taken it out of the classroom and I had not allowed him to hold it in his hand, he would have pitched a fit and he wouldn't have come. Yeah, I've seen that too with with students where it's like the teacher's like, oh no, we can't bring anything or, mm-hmm. you know, trying to set up the whole, nope, you can't have that. You have to leave it at home. And then the kids has a tantrum. And then now you only have 10 minutes with the kid versus 30 mm-hmm. minutes with the kid. Right. And I think building that initial rapport and getting that buy-in from the kid is really valuable. That's a really good tip. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of going along with this now, thinking about, you know, we provide treatment and support to students in schools, what type of suggestions would you have for either teachers or other SLPs who are writing speech goals for IEPs? What might that look like? So first of all, I love that you're asking that question because I think that's something we could all talk about for a long time. Yeah. Many <laughs> goals that we've all seen written in many different <laughs> ways. But I think the biggest thing to remember is it has to be measurable. How are we collecting data to measure this goal? How can we make it specific so we understand what the goal is working on? Lots and lots of times 
I've seen, for example, because we're talking about speech therapy, child X, whatever the name is, will improve his expressive and receptive vocabulary. Okay, great, but what does that really mean? Can he identify opposites? Does he know homonyms? Does he know homophones? I mean, I that goal is so general. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, not any clue at all. So yep. uh, what we've now ended up doing over time is really, like I said, just making those more specific. So saying child X will identify synonyms with 80% accuracy. Okay, well, that's great because you actually know what the child is doing or maybe if it's a child who's more working on more basic vocabulary, you know, child's vocabulary will be up to a hundred words. Okay, well still you can measure that. So like I said, I think the most important thing is making sure it's a measurable goal, making sure it's specific enough to understand where literally anyone else should, including another speech therapist, should be able to pick up those goals and have no problem with where you left off. Everybody should be able to understand what it is. Shouldn't be like Greek. That's not the idea at all. <laughs> I think that's yeah. so, so important to remember. And I've come across like students who come to a school and the teacher reads the IEP and they're thinking, what on earth? Like, what are they working on over there? Or they'll read the goals <laughs> and they meet the kid and think, no, this doesn't really match up, you know? So it's just so important yeah. to have those really detailed goals and know how to measure them as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of times like the teacher should be working on it during the classroom, kind of exposing them to some of those same similar goals. So speaking of IEP meetings, I know from personal experience as a teacher and a behavior analyst supporting teachers, that these can be kind of overwhelming meetings. And for a lot of the kids, there's you know, there might be a school psychologist going over their data and their test results. So an SLP going over their data and an OT going over their data. And it's a lot to throw at the parents. What kind of tips do you have for kind of softening how we talk about student deficits and kind of interacting, making that a better experience for the parents? I love that you're asking that because I think we have to keep in mind that this is their child. And this is not easy for them to hear that the child is having difficulty in school. They're now, you know, either already in the special education department or that's the initial meeting where they're going to sign up for the special ed services. So I think understanding this is not an easy process for the parent. They're there because they're committed to their child doing better. I think just understanding, you know, sometimes I've seen parents cry during these meetings and I understand that this is difficult for them to hear. Understanding where they're coming from, emphasizing, I think, what the child is good at, because there are a lot mm -hmm. of things that the child is good at. And I think that's a really good thing to talk about. Typically, I, I try to do it at the beginning, saying, okay, I've worked with child so-and-so, you know, X number of times a week. I really like how they work. I really like their behavior. They come to sessions, you know, very nicely. Just all the things you can point out that I think how they're really doing well. And sure, it's important to talk about their deficits or area of weakness. But I think when you talk about, again, in measurable terms, and I say, okay, all of these goals are, you know, we're trying to get to 80% accuracy, but hey, last six week period, they were at 40. Now they're at 60. I think if you can show that there's progress that's being made and also say, hey, there's progress that's being made, but we're not where we want to get to yet. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, too, of using the data to be able to frame those conversations and also to really taking that time to highlight those positives. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in the IEP meetings where it, a parent's just getting berated with all the negatives mm -hmm. about their kid. And it, it just sets a really poor tone for that meeting, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's a really vital piece of advice that you're giving there of definitely make sure you highlight those strengths that we're seeing with those students. 
And honestly, because some of these kids, you know, do have quite a lot of deficits, you may have to dig deep to find something positive. And I get that because I work with some kids who do have quite a bit of trouble with speech and language and reading and you know, they might have an intellectual disability or things like that, but there's always a positive you can find. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. always something you can say. You may just have to really think about it, but the answer is still there. Yeah, mm-hmm. ab- absolutely. Yeah, I always say there's always something positive about everybody, right? And it's just a matter of figuring out, you know, how you want to frame it and, and what those uh-huh. what those traits are. Excellent. So, Mira, this was uh, fantastic information that you provided for our listeners. So we really thank you for that. You know, a lot of times we like to be able to provide resources for our listeners. So where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and uh, Super Speech Solutions? Sure. So again, my name is Mira, M-E-E-R-A. My last name is Dieters, D-E-T-E-R-S. The best way to find more information about Super Speech Solutions is by going to my website. So it's really easy. It's superspeechsolutions.com. My email address is also pretty easy as well. It's my first name, Mira, M-E-E-R-A, at superspeechsolutions.com. For people who like to go on social media, my most active social media page is on Facebook, which is Super Speech Solutions, LLC. I do also have one on Instagram, which is all lowercase super speech solutions. And I'm also on LinkedIn, super speech solutions, LLC. So now you have many, many ways to reach me. (laughs) I think I listed them all. And I also wanted to mention that I do have a really exciting in-person summer camp coming up to work on social skills for two weeks in June. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be outdoors at a park in Houston. Like I said, it's in person. Even I feel like, man, I need to work on my own social skills. (laughs) Um, But I think it's going to be great because it also, I changed it now to where there's a daily option. So if a parent just wants to sign their child up for the day, that's totally an option. You still have the option on, you know, to sign up for the whole week or for the full two weeks if you really want to make sure We work on all those speech and language goals, even those that are not targeting social skills. So there's a lot we can do in that time. And I think it's going to be really, really great for kids. Um, I'm saying it's for kids six and up. I think it could really be for four and up as long as they're potty trained. They're okay, you know, being there without a caregiver for an hour and a half, which really isn't too long. But I think it's going to be really great because a lot of kids don't get speech therapy during the summer because school is closed. So I think it'll be a nice way to do fun things and not sitting there, you know, at a desk. We're not going to be taking data and things like that. The idea is to make it fun, play games, but to work on social skills in a fun way so that, yeah, it looks like we're playing. doesn't even look like we're doing work, even though we are. That's the goal. That's awesome. And definitely teachers are listening or parents I know you're in Houston, Texas, right? Yes. Um, But definitely like asking around, maybe the school would know or just searching social skills groups or speech and language Mm -hmm. social skills groups for the summer to try to find new things that are helping your students or your kids over the summer. It's perfect. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. If you found value in this show, please leave a rating or share it with a friend. Resources mentioned during this episode and links to our social media pages can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about how Class on Task can make a difference in your classroom or school, check out our website, classontask.com. Thank you so much for joining us today and see you next time.